This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. All Haymarket titles are currently 40% off as part of Haymarket's holiday sale. Browse more than a thousand Haymarket books from authors including Angela Davis, Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Eve Ewing, Aja Monet, Mariam Kaba, Naomi Klein, Rebecca Solnit, Olufemi Taiwo, Muhammad El-Kurd, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Mike Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, Astra Taylor, and many more. All 40% off until the end of the year. Head over to haymarketbooks.org to browse Haymarket's full catalog and help ensure the future of radical publishing by making a purchase today. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Many in the West have long since become accustomed to viewing the Middle East as a region of timeless religious violence and tribal backwardness. But this conventional wisdom has everything entirely upside down. It's a frame whose chief function is to mystify history and, in doing so, legitimate colonialism and imperialism. The Arab regions of what was once the Ottoman Empire have in fact been home to what is perhaps the world's most ambitious cosmopolitan experiment, an effort to create a society that ecumenically encompasses Muslim, Christian, and Jew. This experiment, however, has been subjected to a century of sustained Western imperial assault. From the European colonial mandates, through the creation of the State of Israel, all the way up to the invasion of Iraq and the subsequent explosion of ISIS. The West has never brought enlightenment to the region. The West has time and again exacerbated the problem of sectarianism in the Middle East and then pathologized the region as innately sectarian and thus in need of further Western intervention. This is the first of a two-part interview with Usama Magdisi on the history of religious coexistence in the Mashrik, the Arab region stretching from the eastern Mediterranean to Iraq. We begin in the 19th century Ottoman Empire, when internal and external pressures pushed the Ottoman government to initiate political and military reforms known as the Tanzimat, an era that coincided with the Nada, or Arab Enlightenment an intellectual and political ferment that reconceptualized Arab as an ecumenical identity encompassing Muslims, Christians, and Jews. The early 20th century brought cataclysmic change to the region. The Ottoman Empire collapsed following World War I and its wartime persecutions of the Armenians. An independent Turkey emerged and engaged in a population exchange with Greece following a bitter war. The Arab Mashrik, though, maintained its remarkable commitment to religious coexistence, but was confronted with direct European colonialism and the imposition of colonial Zionism on Palestine. This all put incredible stress onto this Arab world ecumenical frame, pushing Arab Muslim, Christians, and especially Jews into increasingly hostile sectarian camps. We end this episode with World War I's European victors imposing colonial domination upon the region, carving up the Mashrik into the British and French colonial mandate governments in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Palestine. 
European powers divided and conquered in the name of protecting religious minorities and of assisting natives in someday securing their own self-determination. Except for Palestine, which, thanks to Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration, was reserved not for native self-determination, but for massive European Jewish settlement to fulfill the colonial Zionist project of creating a national home for the Jewish people. Next episode, we discuss how colonial Zionism in the establishment of the State of Israel, the Nakba of the Palestinians, smashed the ecumenical frame in Palestine and upset it everywhere across the region. As Palestinian Muslims and Christians were ethnically cleansed from their lands to make way for the new state of Israel, Arab Jews were pushed and pulled into Israel. Rather than see these as separate tragedies and traumas, in our second episode, we discuss how they both reflected the impact of a colonial Zionism that rejected an ecumenical Palestine and also the very possibility of being an Arab Jew or a Jewish Arab. Later on, about a month from now, I'll pick up where Osama and I leave off with a two-part interview with Abdel Takriti on the history of Arab political radicalisms, socialism, communism, Nasserism, Baathism, Islamism, that sweep the post-1948 region. Before we get started, we receive so many kind words from so many of you about the important political education work that we at The Dig are doing, and we really, really appreciate it. The best way for you to show your appreciation, of course, is to make a contribution to this project at patreon.com slash the dig. The dig is overwhelmingly listener supported, supported by listeners like you. That's why we can put out every episode for free with no paywall. We want everyone to listen regardless of your ability to pay. But that only works if those of you who can afford to contribute do so. What's more, all contributors get our excellent newsletter, which is free on our website, but everyone who contributes gets that newsletter delivered to your email inbox where you will actually read it. And contributors can also receive, depending on how much you donate and where you live, a book or books in the mail, a tote bag, maybe a coffee mug. Contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please hook us up for the holidays. Thanks for listening and for all the kind words. The fact that this show is so useful to so many of you doing such critical work out there is profoundly gratifying. Here's part one of my interview with Usama Magdisi, professor of history and chancellor's chair at the University of California, Berkeley. His books include Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promise of U.S.-Arab Relations, 1820-2001, to Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries in the Failed Conversion of the Middle East, in the book we're discussing today, Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Usama Magdisi, welcome to The Dick. It's great to be here. Your book, The Age of Coexistence, takes on perhaps the most powerful Western myth about the Middle East, that the Arab world is a timelessly tribal and war-torn region, a, a land riven by age-old sectarian divides. You write, quote, some kind of pathological place consumed by the disease of sectarianism. Before we get into the remarkable history you tell, let's lay out this still quite dominant Orientalist spectacle that, that functions as that history's negation or mystification. As you write, quote, 
the ubiquitous representation of a sectarian Middle East consistently medievalizes the region. It conflates contemporary political identification with far older religious solidarities. And we definitely hear it all the time with regard to Palestine, where in mainstream accounts, the so-called conflict is often at best framed as a timeless one fueled by religious difference and thus sort of hopeless, and at worst is portrayed as the product of a medieval Arab Muslim savagery. Before we get into all the history, what sort of political work does this powerful discourse that you're demolishing accomplish? And why is the study of history so key to the demystification work that we must all carry out? Well, those are great questions. And the, the first answer would be that the, the traditional narrative the, that dehistoricizes, that removes history, removes contexts, removes any sense of change over time and thus reduces the Middle East, the Arab world, the Islamic world, the entire, any world, frankly, to this place that can be understood in the simplest and most vulgar of terms, unchanging essential identities at war. So therefore, you don't actually need history because it's always the same. It's an endless repetition of the same. And so I think any historical work, any real historical work, there's a lot of mischievous historical work, but any real historical work by definition, historicizes, puts things in context, tracks change over time, and also points out, in the case of the Middle East, as, you, as, as I tried to do in Age of Coexistence, points out uh, an extraordinary tradition, a tradition that's not the same, that's not unchanging, but that is a rich repository of certain truths and certain facets and certain narratives and aspects, which is to say that the Middle East, the Arab world, the Islamic world, is in fact a repository of an extraordinary range of coexistence that, like any form of coexistence, ebbs and flows, has different facets, different areas, and so on and so forth, but that is rich and that requires investigation with empathy as opposed to the way the Middle East is always represented, in the West at least, which is that place of feuding, endless, sectarian, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Arab, Sunni, Shiite struggles, all of which completely flatten out a much, much richer history. Let's turn to the history, starting with the Ottoman Empire in those those many hundreds of years leading up to the mid-19th century. And the mid-19th century, which we'll get to, it's this moment when some really big changes take place. But up until that moment, how did the Ottoman government, an Islamic caliphate, up until the mid-19th century, how did it operate a multi-confessional empire that privileged the Muslim majority, but also created subordinated forms of autonomy for non-Muslims, namely for Christians and Jews? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's an extraordinarily important question, Dan, and also a very, you know, there's a, there's a very long answer. I'll give you the short, the short version. The short version is that it's a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-linguistic empire that didn't presume that everyone was the same, didn't try to make everyone one religion, didn't try to convert everybody, didn't make everyone speak the same language. And so it really was an extraordinarily diverse, but of course, hierarchical empire in the nature of empire. There was very clearly a, a hierarchy that led all the way to the top of the empire, which was a sultan in Istanbul. And there was absolutely a discourse of domination, but it wasn't, you say Muslim majority, it's, it's important to underscore to listeners that it's not a Muslim majority as an estate of citizens you know, before the 19th century. It's not that the Muslim subjects, who were, of course, also tax-paying subjects, were often oppressed. 
It wasn't that they they had rights of citizenship that others didn't have. They were all all were subjects of the Sultan, but there were certainly disabilities. Like in other words, non-Muslims, Christians and Jews in particular, were people of the book. They had certain autonomy, religious, cultural, linguistic autonomy. But of course, they were also subordinated to an Islamic empire. So the idea was an Islamic empire, a certain kind of primacy, a very specific, in fact, ideological and legal primacy to Islam and to the Ottoman Empire and to the Ottoman Sultanate. And beyond that, there were these sort of layers, a cascade of hierarchy, layers of hierarchy that included Christian and Jewish ecclesiastical, Christian ecclesiastical elites, Jewish communal leaders, various local notables, you know, depending on which part of the empire we're talking about, that these were all these these groups were all co-opted into an imperial hierarchy. But there was no equality, there was no citizenship, and there was no pretense of equality or citizenship. I think that's that's the key that's the key part. So people say it was tolerant, yeah, it was tolerant depending on the moment. As soon as you challenge the empire, then all your sort of differences were were highlighted, and you were, and one was sort of attacked or discriminated against. Uh, but for the most part, depending on again which area we're talking about, Christians and Jews and Muslims in the empire managed and lived an extraordinarily sort of productive existence uh, for centuries. But again, with the with the crucial caveat that this is not about equality, and it's not about citizenship, and we cannot romanticize. The, the early modern or pre-modern Ottoman Empire, which is what scholars, well, not scholars, but people often do. They romanticize this early period. And you write, quote, it is misleading to use the treatment of Jews as the barometer of toleration in the Ottoman Empire, as conventional scholarship on Ottoman toleration has done. There was no Jewish question in the Ottoman world. How then should we understand that sociopolitical order? What specifically are we misunderstanding about Ottoman society and politics when we mistakenly read it through the lens of Europe's Jewish question? That really is an important question and gets to the heart of so many of the problems of how we think about the Middle East today, how we think about Israel today, how we think about the Palestinians, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to later on in the conversation. But the the point I was trying to make in, in that is that Oftentimes, scholars talk about, they think about the the Jewish populations of the Ottoman Empire as a barometer of toleration. In the same way, they make an analogy, a direct analogy with the situation of Jews in Christian Western Europe. The the problem, of course, with that is that there was no, for the most part, as I said, there was no Jewish question. The Jews were not singled out as the minority in the Ottoman Empire. There were many different communities, many different minorities, and the point I make, of, and of course, the great persecutions that occurred in the Ottoman, uh, in the early modern period were of Kizilbash, in other words, not Jewish subjects, but other subjects, Shia subjects, uh, rebellious Sunni subjects, depending again, which part of the empire we're talking about, which period. And insofar as there was, uh, and I'm sure, depending again on the period and the time and the place, uh, there's no question that at certain moments, Jewish subjects were, in fact, persecuted but no in other words not it wasn't persecution in the sense of a constant stigmatization of a single group throughout the period of the empire so i think it's extraordinarily misleading for somebody to take european history and then project it onto the ottomans i think again it's important to emphasize again and again and again that we need to respect the history of this part of the world on its own terms the forms of domination and subordination 
were so complex and varied. I mean, just look at the 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 Janissaries, the elite soldier troop who were basically forcefully taken from from Christian families on the the periphery of the empire, if I have it correctly. At, at a certain period, yes, that was the case. And again, the, the the point is you cannot take European sort of categories and just impose them on an Ottoman past, which was vastly more complex. But the point I was trying to make in the book ultimately is that there is nevertheless, especially in the Arab provinces and the Arab mashriq, the Arab East, in other words, is what I focused on more than anything else in, in the book. It's to talk about this extraordinary history of coexistence that never gets its due in the sense that we talk about Andalusia, we talk about all these wonderful moments of Christian, Muslim, Jewish coexistence with all the mythologies around that that, has been, that that scholars have deconstructed. Nevertheless, people still look at Andalusia as an extremely important aspect and part and, and time and era and epoch of history. But we don't talk about Damascus, for example, or Aleppo, or, or other cities where there was, in fact, a much longer history of coexistence, or Cairo, uh, or other, other cities where there was a very long history of coexistence as well between different communities. And we tend to, to ignore that because it's not in Europe. It's not Spain. I mean, not, I don't want to dismiss or minimize Spain or Andalusia. That's really important as well. But I'm saying that there is a very long history of coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and that that coexistence itself has to be also historicized and also disaggregated because it depends on which class, which quarter, which urban location, rural location, and so on and so forth. Again, very complex. It's an avenue that I think scholars and students and general readers actually would do well to investigate because there's so much we actually don't know about this history. Yeah. One other follow-up question on this before we get to the mid-19th century, a follow-up question on the mistakes we can make attempting to read the Middle East or Ottoman Empire, Ottoman history in particular, through kind of European presumptions. How, How did the Ottomans' social order compare to European Christendom over those many centuries? And I know that's a absolutely giant yeah. question, possibly an impossible one, especially yeah. given that European Christendom encompassed just a mind-boggling multiplicity of warring polities. And the massive Ottoman Empire stretched, I think, as far west as modern-day Algeria, as far south as Eritrea, through Ukraine to the North Caucasus, to the Iranian, the Persian border. But are there salient comparisons to be made because you caution us in, against this this simplistic assessment that that Jews were treated well in the Ottoman Empire versus badly in in Europe are there any key salient comparisons we can make between the social formations that prevailed in Europe in this heavily fragmented early modern feudal order and those which prevailed in the Ottomans tributary empire the problem with a historian is one is always going to say it depends, it depends, it depends on the context. But really what I would say, just in, in very general terms, I would say the, the main there are a couple of main differences. One is, of course, that it's not I'm not disputing the fact that Jews were treated poorly in European countries. They were expelled from England. They were expelled from Spain uh, you know, after the, the so-called Reconquista. It's not denying that at all. And the opposite, of course, is is the, the the reality in the Ottoman Empire is that they were not expelled in the Ottoman Empire, at least not not in total the way it happened in England and in Spain. But what I would say is that the main difference is that in the Ottoman Empire, there's two main differences. One is, of course, that it's an Islamic empire. 
So an Islamic empire, both theologically and politically, as well as administratively, has built into it this very idea that there is a profound legitimacy to Jewish and Christian traditions, because of course, Islamic tradition is the in, in its own vision an inheritor and the culmination of these earlier, you know, monotheistic traditions. So there's a there's a kind of space that was never opened up in the Christian empires until much later for Muslims. That's one thing. That's one huge difference. Uh, so the, I think the basis of a kind of theologically and politically inflected and administratively inflected coexistence was there, was already present. That's one thing. The second thing is when the Ottomans expand into the Arab East in particular, they were conquering sort of the great bastions of Islam and the great urban centers of Islam. And of the, in other words, they were conquering other Muslim peoples for the most part. The Arabs were mostly Muslim. Of course, they were Christian and Jewish Arabs, but they were mostly Muslim. And so they were conquering, the Ottomans were conquering Cairo, Aleppo, Damascus, Jerusalem, Mecca and Medina. And so these are all, so in Baghdad, of course, these are all major, major cities with, with, with extraordinary histories. And so there was a sense that it's a very different kind of relationship to the subjects that they conquered, as opposed to what the colonial empires, the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish did in the New World, for example, where the entire project was one of conquering. Uh, first of all, not even recognizing the, the whole debate whether these, the people they were conquering had souls, to what extent they had souls, could they be enslaved, could they not be enslaved? That's a completely different kind of question. So I think th those differences are important to, to emphasize. I mean, there are many more we could get into, but those are the main ones. There's an idea that the Ottomans did not want or ever try to, to create a homogenous imperial system. But then again, as soon as I say that, I recognize that nor did the British or the French or the Dutch or the Spanish, although they did try to convert people en masse to Christianity. How and why did the Ottoman social sociopolitical order begin to change so dramatically in the mid-19th century? This a period of reform known as the Tanzimat that stretched, I believe, from the 1839 imperial proclamation of non-discrimination between Muslim and non-Muslim subjects through the 1876 enactment of the Ottoman constitution. You write that intense Ottoman confrontation with European powers, namely, I think, the Crimean War and a series of anti-Ottoman revolts that break out across the Balkans, that this played a key role in driving internal reforms, especially in terms of the place of religious minorities. So just how significant were the changes that were implemented and what, and what were the forces that brought those changes about when they came about? Well, I mean, the massive, massive implications when you're trying to change an empire of difference, which is what the empire was before the 19th century, an empire, in other words, that 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 glorified or that maintained difference, as I said, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, multi-religious empire, where being Ottoman wasn't something that was open to all subjects, de depending on, again, where they were. It was very much a, 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 dynast, a dynastic identification. To change that kind of imperial system, which was filled with extraordinary amounts of hierarchy, again, religious, class, social, urban, geographic, uh, all sorts of other hierarchies as well, trying to change that kind of empire into an empire of citizens, making everyone Ottoman in a very new sense. In other words, if you're born in the Ottoman Empire, you're an Ottoman citizen. That's a very new idea. You have to overcome a huge amount of obviously inherited um, differences, prejudices, traditions, 
forms of administration, you know, it was, an, it was an enormous challenge. It was a revolution, in fact, in the 19th century. But my point in that was to say that it's no different, if we think about it conceptually, than any 19, massive 19th century change. Uh, I tried to make the parallels. I know these are just these are just parallels. It wasn't, but they are actually happening at the same time. They're coeval. They're happening at the same time. They're not the same processes. These are not the same political economies or administra administrative structures or imperial structures. But I tried to make the parallels for my readers um, in English with what's going on in the United States. Although, again, it's completely different. The non-Muslims are not the same as, as black Americans or black slaves in, in the United States. No way, shape or form are they oppressed in that way. But the, the momentousness of the transformation at one level, I'm trying to draw this idea of the momentous nature of the shift of going from an empire of difference to an empire of citizens parallels what happened in the United States in terms of the massive shift of going from a republic that proclaimed, that accepted slavery and, and had no place for, for black citizens really in any, in any meaningful way to an empire that tried to overcome or to, to an American US policy that tried to overcome with all the ambivalences and contradictions and, and problems and ongoing problems in terms of racism and so on, tried to overcome that in, in a post-Civil War era. And these are happening at actually the same time. It's quite interesting. And they're happening in different parts of the world, in different contexts, but the, the, the change was momentous. The difference is, of course, that in the Ottoman case, there was the added factor of European imperialism. And that's a huge factor because that, that really does distort both shapes and distorts Ottoman history and, and of course, post-Ottoman Middle Eastern history all the way till now. That's to say that there is no independent, autonomous, really, you can't really think of Ottoman or Arab or Islamic history in the 19th century onwards without thinking of Western intervention. That doesn't mean the West is responsible for everything, but it means that you cannot possibly honestly interpret anything without taking into account Western imperialism, colonialism, economic penetration, uh, Orientalism, racism, so on and so forth. So in that sense, I think there are parallels, but there's also huge differences. Was the primary factor that brought about these changes, this external factor of, of Western imperialism, what caused the Ottoman Empire, which of course would not survive World War I, which we'll get to in a while, to enter into the sort of crisis and, and decline that it did. The same reason why, why states and empires everywhere in the world enter into reform. You enter into reform because you're forced into it, because you have to, because there's a recognition or there was a recognition on the part of Ottoman administrators that the empire as it was, was no longer viable. There were, uh, you alluded to the internal challenges, there were rebellions inside the empire. There was, of course, the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in 1798, even before the Tanzimat began. There was the Greek War of Independence that broke out in the 1820s. There, were, there was, of course, the European destruction of the Ottoman fleet as a result of the Greek War of Independence. There were Balkan rebellions. I mean, there were all these rebellions taking place throughout the empire. And there was, of course, constant Western pressure, Russian imperialism. There's so many different factors, internal and external. I don't think one can disaggregate and say it's one or the other. I think it's both at the same time coalescing around the idea that the Ottoman Empire really needed to change. And there was, just like today, there was a huge amount of Western pressure to basically, quote unquote, ameliorate the condition of non-Muslims, Christians uh, largely, 
in the empire. And the Ottomans uh, had to take that seriously because they understood perfectly well that the Europeans were going to use the, just like the Americans do today in the Middle East and other parts of the world, they were going to use the the reality of of the diversity and the pluralism of the empire against the empire itself. And so they were going to use, do you see what I'm saying? They were going to use the, the reality of the, the conditions of non-Muslims to undermine Ottoman sovereignty. So the Ottomans understood that that had to be dealt with. And plus they had, they, they were under so much pressure that they had to do something. So they embark upon this reformation. And the point I make about the reformation that again, people lose sight of is that it has two sides. On the one hand, the reformation, first and foremost, the most important part of the reformation is not the fact that it gave non-Muslims or it, that it, it formally or ideologically abolished discrimination. I mean, there was that aspect of the, of, which is important. But the real factor or the real decisive aspect of the Ottoman Reformation was that it was about securing or resecuring Ottoman sovereignty. And so, and so that's the priority always. So, so long as Ottoman sovereignty is being secured, you can be non-discriminatory, despite all the challenges. As soon as the threat to sovereignty shows up, well, then the whole question of non-discrimination sort of gets relegated to the background. And these two aspects, yeah, because these two aspects are are constantly intertwined with each other, sovereignty and non-discrimination. Because it's a, it's a renegotiation of the relationship between sovereign and subject in order to stabilize sovereignty. Correct. And but and the sovereignty is is of course from the imperial perspective sovereignty is what is what's privileged and prioritized in every instance. And it's really important to emphasize that. So it's not something they did out of the goodness of their heart. It's, I mean this is an empire after all, it's a state. Uh, it was filled with 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 what what I would call Ottoman orientalism, in other words looking down at their own subjects as backwards. It was filled with with elitism, of course. It was and, and at the same time they were dealing with European extraordinary amounts of European imperial interventions. Remember, the, the, the France invaded, as I said, Egypt in 1798. They also invaded Algeria in 1830. The Russians were taking invading parts and taking away parts of the northern parts of the empire. There were Balkan rebellions, the Greek War of Independence, which led to the creation of of the independent kingdom of Greece. There was Serbia and so on and so forth. I mean, there were all these pressures that kept going throughout the 19th century. And then, as you mentioned, there was the Crimean War. What does this Tanzimat launched by Ottoman officialdom, this top-down process, what does that have to do with the beginning of the Nada, or Arab awakening, this pivotal moment in Arab history that, that began in the second half of the 19th century and stretched, I think, into the mid-20th, the mid that was an explosion of intellectual, political, social cultural production, exchange, and debate. What what does this more intellectual political movement have to do with this top-down process of reform? Two things. One is, of course, the the, the Ottoman Reformation is, is a state project, as you said. It is top-down, no question about it. It's coming from Istanbul, and it's being directed out to the provinces. But the important part to remember is that it's creating sort of a sovereign frame within which sort of a framework within which people of all faiths and backgrounds in the Ottoman Empire, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish, particularly in the Arab East, what I focus on, were able to, in, in the context of a single sovereign power, were able to elaborate and try to answer and try to think through the questions of, okay, what does it mean to go from being to being, to, what does it mean to be an empire of citizens? How are we Ottoman? 
How are we modern? What is the relationship between religion and the state? What is the relationship between our history of coexistence and the reality of citizenship, the new reality of citizenship? How do we reconcile religious difference with Ottoman citizenship? And these were the kinds of questions. How do we catch up to the West? How are we different from the West? These are the kinds of questions that produced an extraordinary amount of intellectual ferment that we refer to as the Nahda, which means the Renaissance, the Arab Renaissance, or you can think of it as an awakening, but it really is a Renaissance in the sense that it paralleled other forms of Renaissance that were taking place in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, whether it's in the Balkans, whether it's among Armenians, whether it's among other Turks or other groups. I mean, there's many different Renaissances, but the one I focus on, of course, is the Arab Renaissance, because the point is it's, it's, it's often thought of as an Arab Renaissance that links the medieval past to the present, and the Ottoman context is almost always obliterated, but it's really in the context of the Ottoman state that this is taking place. And as I said, it's important because it indicates that there is ideological diversity within the Ottoman Empire, and there was ideological diversity within the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire, and that is something that we should, rather than be ashamed of, it's something actually quite profound and quite important, and it's worth revisiting because, again, just like in any society, in any living, real, diverse society, you have diverse perspectives about how to relate to the present, how do you reconcile religion and state, what is the role of citizenship uh, and religiosity, how do you reconcile Western imperialism with Western modernity, and so on and so forth. So yeah, in that sense, it was a profound process of, of asking questions. But the, the, the last thing I would say down on this point is to underscore the fact that people in the 19th century in the Arab provinces the, the main difference was that despite, of course, the massacres of 1860 that I talk about in the book um, and, and, this, and these, these horrific moments, there, and there were some terrible moments, the, the, the reality is that most people after 1860 in particular looked forward. They had a sense that it was within their own agency and their own power to articulate and develop a, a sense of a new common future. And that's really important, that sense that the that the future was something that was there to be grasped or to be to be walked towards through their own agency. That it wasn't that we needed the West as such. It's that we had the power within ourselves as Muslims, Christians, and Jews, as Arabs, or as Ottomans. Again, these are these these identities were were in flux. You know, that as Arabs, as Ottomans, as Aleppans, as Damascenes, as Jerusalemites, wherever you were from. Um, as people in Cairo or Alexandria, we had the power to, to, to reach a future together and to articulate. And of course, we debate amongst each other, is it better to do this way or that way? More secular or more pious? And my point is that there's an extraordinary amount of, of intellectual growth. There's the, there is the development of the press, newspapers, magazines. It's, a, it's an extraordinary moment. And of course, you have, without uh, that scholars have focused on forever, which is that you had missionary movements, you had Western missionary movements, as in Catholic missions, you had Protestant missions, you had uh, uh, the Alliance Israelite, you had sort of uh, secular, or you can call it French missions. You had all sorts of missions that were sort of in the in the Middle East, trying the, giving their own answers to these questions. Almost always in, uh, I would say, less uh, in forms that were not about sort of emphasizing diversity, but about trying to get people to think the way a British missionary would, or a French missionary would, or an American missionary would, or the Alliance would, as opposed to 
local answers, which were um, uh, fascinating because unlike the foreign missionaries, the local people actually had oftentimes, especially the ones I, I focus on in the book, they had a sense that you could in fact build a common future based on embracing religious difference, not not denying it, embracing religious difference. And through the embracing of religious difference, we could sort of, we could transcend our religious difference without denying it. And that's something really important. That's why I call it an ecumenical moment, because it really was about recognizing, and this is quite different from France, for example, where you say, okay, we're all secular, we're going to ignore religion, and we're going to go to war against religious symbolism and so on and so forth. It's not laïcité. And it's not laïcité at all, no. But it draws on a certain form of laïcité in the sense of saying that you can transcend the older Islamic imperial system into a more secular Ottoman system. And you can be both Muslim, Christian, or and Jewish, and be Ottoman or Arab. You could be these things. It's almost secular without being secularist. Yeah, or or just think of it as ecumenical. Yeah, you could think of it as because ecumenical is more, I think, more precise because it's about it's recognizing that our religious differences themselves are important in constituting what makes us uh, common. In other words, the commonality is our belief in God. And that was, that was the, the, I mean, of course there were secular, there were genuine secular, there were atheists as well. There were socialists. There were, there were all these other groups that didn't necessarily, or people didn't believe necessarily in God. So, but, but by and large, the, I would say the mainstream, the overwhelming majority of people accepted the fact of religious difference as a, a key constituent factor in the development of a national solidarity that transcended without denying that difference. It's a bit complicated, but I'm just trying to get to that point. It's more like an American form of multiculturalism, if you think about it, rather than the French laïcité, if I had to like, make an analogy. You just mentioned this a few minutes back, but, but the beginning of the nada was also marked by the Nada's opposite, in a sense, this unprecedented outbreak of anti-Christian violence across the empire in Aleppo, Damascus, and Mount Lebanon. Why did this mass anti-Christian violence break out when and where it did? And how did the reaction to the violence shape this broader movement toward a new, modern Arab framework for for multi-confessional coexistence, this this ecumenical frame? I mean, first of all, I wouldn't say there wasn't a mass outbreak of of anti-Christian violence throughout the empire it was in a few. It was in a few locales, Aleppo, famously or infamously, in 1850, Damascus, 1860, and Mount Lebanon, 1860. I would, I would bracket. I mean, let's put Mount Lebanon aside for a second. The reason, of course, is, is I mean, historians debate this. There are historians who say there are economic reasons. There was a depression in the local economy. There was the penetration of Western sort of um, uh, goods, and there was um, the, the the Tanzimat, the transformation. Suddenly, you're being told you're no longer in an Islamic state, uh, you're or an Islamic empire with primacy over primacy to Muslims. You're now suddenly everyone is going to be treated the same, but you have missionaries and you have Western intervention. So again, historians debate whether it's more economic, whether it's social, whether it's X, Y, and Z. There, there are many different factors. The easy thing to say is that there are many factors that led to these riots. And there's no question they were unprecedented in their scale. In Damascus, for example, in July 1860, and Aleppo 1850, Damascus was a larger riot uh, and, and a truly terrible riot. And it's one of the things I talk about in the book is why don't we have an Arabic? But that's that's a separate discussion for a separate audience. Why we don't have an Arabic, a proper history in Arabic of this moment and it's high time that that we take ownership of our history rather than just deny it or pretend that these moments didn't happen because they did. 
and it's important to historicize and to, to talk about them honestly and, and deal with these, with these problems and these episodes. But the point I try to make in the book is that what's interesting about 1860, the massacre, is not just that it was a, a, a massive event that devastated the Christian community of Damascus in 1860. And notice that the Jewish community in Damascus was not attacked in 1860. Again, this goes back to your first, your very first question. And it's important, again, to emphasize that it, the Jews were not singled out in the 19th century. In fact, if any, if any group, national group, was singled out in the 19th century by the Ottoman state towards the end of the empire, it was the Armenians, of course, but we can get to that again later. But in 1860, it was a breakdown of Ottoman order. There was a complete breakdown of Ottoman order. Again, in, in Arab historiography, in nationalist historiography, they, they say it was an Ottoman plot. It's not true. It really was a breakdown of Ottoman order. And, and what happened is that the Christians were targeted in Damascus, but so too were foreign consulates. And so too were foreign missions. So again, there's, there's this confusion and conflation that occurred on the ground, but also many Muslims protected their Christian neighbors as well. And in fact, the testimonies we have from that, the surviving testimony, some of the surviving testimonies we have from that moment, in fact, speak extraordinarily beautifully to this moment of how, how they were protected by their Muslim neighbors. And so, but the point of all this is that, yes, there was a, there was a, there was this terrible event and it could have been sparked. It could have been a reaction, for example, to the Ottoman Reformation, but more likely it was a reaction not just to the ideological reformation, but to the economic changes, to political changes. There are many different reasons why these events occurred. But what's interesting is that people on the ground realized at 1860 and after 1860 that there was a, they were at a crossroads. Okay, so we have this diverse empire, we have pluralism, and pluralism can either become a, a force that divides us, as in 1860 when you massacre Christian subjects, or it can become a force that actually unites us in the sense of, as I said, becoming the building blocks of a common Arab or Ottoman or Arab-Ottoman identity. Do you see what I'm saying? So there was a, it was a crossroads, just like you would in America when you have a race riot. I mean, the, again, uh, the, these analogies never really work when you push them, you know, but they do in the sense of the race riots and racism develops an anti-racist thinking and, and, and a commitment among people. And so too in the, in the Arab world, in the sense that sectarian riots and sectarian, as in religious rioting or sectarian rioting, develops and coheres an anti-sectarian sensibility that really begins to come to the fore after 1860. And that's why the Nahda and, and the, this moment is profound because it really puts in place and cements after these riots an awareness among the people that I, I follow in the book an awareness that there's that we're at a pivotal moment in our history. We can go in either in a very negative direction or we can go in a positive direction, but it's up to us and we have to figure this out ourselves. And so they, they develop, the ones I, I follow, develop these things called national schools, not nationalist, not exclusionary schools, but national schools as in building this idea of a common identity. And so, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's why this was such an important moment. Now, at the same time, I don't want to get, go too long on the answer, when these riots take place in Damascus, where this this breakdown, the Europeans, of course, send an army. France sends an army. And the Ottomans also send an army. And they both go into Damascus, at, or Mount Lebanon and Damascus, and they so-called restore order, uh, you know, ruthlessly restore order. And they hang and they shoot all sorts of people in the name of restoring imperial justice and the Tanzimat. And this is, again, a well-known story to historians. 
and to scholars. But what's interesting is that then, the while, while on the ground you have people committed to the Nahda who are basically saying, we need to figure out our own future in, in common, the Europeans basically say, no, the way we're going to rearrange things in the Ottoman Empire is to try to separate Muslims from Christians and create sectarian structures, which eventually becomes the state of Lebanon many, many decades down the line. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I, I just want to put a pin in this moment for listeners because it seems like this popular conflation that happens in the 1860s of Arab Christians with outside imperialist forces anticipates the later conflation of Arab Jews with imperialist forces that comes with the advent of colonial Zionism and then the state of Israel. Yes, but with with a huge with uh, I mean that's an interesting point, and I would say, but with a, with a major, major, major caveat. In the case of the Christian, we can talk about the uh, Arab Jews and Jewish Arabs and a little later. But in the case of the Arab Christians, I mean, what's interesting is that it's actually Arab Christians or Christian Arabs who are at the forefront of actually sort of developing these so-called national schools that unify people um, and that, that are actually explicitly aimed at trying to reconcile and in fact reconciling religious difference with pluralism and Ottoman and Arab subject uh, commonality. And I think that that's really important to emphasize. In other words, it's so important to emphasize this point. Yes, there were some Christians who throw their lot in with European imperialists. There was, as you said, there is also an identification or an association between local Christians and European empires. This is more the case, I think, with the Armenians than it is with Arab Christians. But there's also people on the ground who are envisioning, and in fact, not just envisioning, but taking advantage of the Ottoman state system and structure to actually elaborate these structures, these new structures of coexistence. And the interesting thing is that these Christian Arabs are in fact rewarded and recognized by the Ottoman state. And one of the main figures I talk about in the book, Mutlus al-Bustani, who opens the first national school in the 1860s after the massacres of 1860, is in fact embraced by the Ottoman state because they see him as a useful person. But of course, he himself has his own agency and his own vision. And he and he builds a really important school that that becomes a model for other kinds of schools and that eventually becomes a model. It's in fact the first such ecumenical, I would say, you can call it secular, but I would call it an ecumenical school in the empire. The first one of its kind. And it's extraordinarily important. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point that Arab Christians are really really disproportionately represented in the Nada to say we are not associated with these Christian European empires. We are Christian Arabs and fundamentally of these places where we are. Yeah. Well, I would say both. I would say, again, again, Christian Arabs are not a monolithic group. So different Christian Arabs respond in different ways. Some are more willing to associate themselves with Europe. Some are less willing to associate themselves with Europe. Some are more pious, some are more secular, some are socialist, and, and, and the same with the Muslim Arabs and Jewish Arabs as well. So I, I think it's, it's, it's really an important point to emphasize that there is, again, this goes back to the earlier point I was making about the Nahda in the 19th century. Despite the massacres, despite the, the massacres, in other words, didn't, was not, this is the crucial point to think later on down the line into the 20th century. The massacres were not the end of coexistence. In fact, the massacres in fact, reframed the urgency of a new kind of coexistence. This is really important to emphasize because when we get to what happens with the Jewish Arabs after the Nakba or after Israel's creation, there's a different story. 
with a, with a much bleaker outcome, I think. And so I, just in terms of getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, but my point is that Christian Arabs, I think Muslim Arabs also participated obviously massively in the Nahda, and so did Jewish Arabs. I mean, again, each depending on their location and their context. So there's, there are many different facets of it. It's a much more complex subject that requires a lot more time. Sticking with that question of Western imperialism, you emphasize that this was not a matter of, of an advanced and enlightened West imposing progress on backward Ottomans. After all, it was the same period that it was this very same period that Europe was on the eve of embarking on the scramble for Africa, where anti-Semitism was confronting Jewish emancipation. It was the same time that the US, the US was in the process of abolishing slavery, but also on the road to overturning Reconstruction and establishing Jim Crow. The the West, in other words, could really not plausibly claim some sort of moral high ground. You you write, quote, it is vital to recognize how many cultures around the world in the 19th century struggled with new ideas of secular citizenship, national unity, and political equality. And in doing so, you argue that it's incorrect or misleading to describe what was happening in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in the Mashriq, as European liberalism making its way into the Middle East. Why is liberalism, as you see it, the wrong explanation for for this Arab construction of, of an ecumenical frame? And what what do we miss if we reduce the Nada to to the conceptual frame of liberalism? Well, two things. One is, of course, that if you just take a European frame and give all the agency and the impetus to Europe, which is the way traditionally the scholarship used to say that there was a, an awakening or a renaissance in the Arab world that, that looked to the West and tried to imitate the West as if the West itself is this, A, this, this beautiful place of progress that's not filled with, with the records that you just alluded to and that I talk about in the book, of course. Anti-Semitism in Europe develops in the, in racialized anti-Semitism develops in the 18th and 19th centuries. So too racism in America, so too sectarianism or communalism in the Middle East, so too in South Asia. These are all problems that develop uh, in uh, more or less the same time period. So the West itself is not a place that, that can be romanticized in this way. It's really crucial to understand this point and underscore this point. The, the, so, so there's no, when you talk about Western liberalism, well, what does that mean? And, and are we talking about, you know, which part of the West are we talking about? In terms of the, the the Middle East and in terms of the Ottoman Empire, the reason why I'm disputing this is because again I think it it loses sight of the fact that Arabs and the ones I'm the, the people I'm focusing on the Arabs of the Mashriq in the in the Nahda after 1860 are drawing on their own history their own traditions both Ottoman and Islamic and Arab traditions as well as Eastern Christian traditions. So there are the, their own traditions that they're drawing on. So it's not just that they're taking Western liberalism wholesale and adopting it and and sort of and moving on with it no it's not it's it's much more of a process of negotiation and they look to many different facets of their history and culture their language they borrowed freely as many different other cultures did in the 19th century of course they borrowed from the west because the west was technologically far and away the most advanced area of the world but they tended not to know too much and this is the, the aspect that, of course, we know, and, and that's why we can't make the mistakes of the 19th century. We know the history of racism. We know the histories of anti-Semitism. We know the histories of, of, of uh, extraordinary brutalization in the colonial world that we can't pretend didn't exist. 
the the issue, the interesting thing or the tragedy of the people in the Nata is that when they look to the West, by and large, they tended not to focus very much on the situation of uh, of inequality in the West. They tended to see the West with what the West brought to them. In other words, sort of technology, uh, consulates, missions, uh, these kinds of things. And they didn't really tend to spend very much time thinking about race relations or, or anti-Semitism or these things. And these are the things like economic dynamism and technological progress that are also allowing Europe to become dominant in the world. So if you are the declining Ottoman Empire that has been at really the center of the world for quite a long time and you're trying to understand why that's changing, that's sort of the more myopic view you're going to take of the West is why are they doing so well and we're doing so poorly? Yeah. And of course, and that's why that's why the Tanzimat also has a military dimension. I mean, the first thing that's reformed is the military. Because again, we go back to this question of sovereignty. So military structures, economic structures, political structures, and finally cultural structures. What comparisons might we make, if any, between the Nada and this sweep of nationalist sentiment that contemporaneously surfaces around Europe and also Latin America? Is is the Nada comparable to these populist nationalist sentiments that are emerging in in large European empires in the late 19th and early 20th century, or, or does the Nada's embrace of ecumenicism make it, in many ways, European nationalism's opposite? Yeah, I would say more the I, I would say more the more the opposite in the sense that the Nada. I mean, first of all, it wasn't a political. It wasn't a single political project. It's important to emphasize that it's in within the Ottoman framework, but it's not a single project. And so, different individuals and groups elaborated different ideas. Again, they were struggling with these questions um, in a productive way. How do you how do you elaborate modernity? What does it mean to be modern? How do we draw the line between religion and secularism, citizenship and pluralism, and so on and so forth? So the, these questions were debated endlessly in the 19th century. But the, the point is that none of the Nahdawis that I talk about or focus on or that I think were the the main the mainstream of these these people advocating and thinking through and articulating a renaissance were invested in creating an ethno-religious nationalist state that that was not their goal they were all within an ottoman frame so by definition they subordinated themselves to an ottoman imperial structure that itself was committed to non-discrimination at least formally legally to non-discrimination and then after 1876 to citizenship, to Ottomans, which is a new concept that comes in in 1876. So they could be both part of a much larger whole, the Ottoman Empire, and at the same time elaborate this idea of being Muslim or Christian or Jewish. And there was no contradiction between these different elements. I think that's important to emphasize, as opposed to the nationalisms that swept Europe and, and of course, the Balkans, which is part of Europe. Uh, where, where basically Greek, Serbian, and other nationalisms, Bulgarian nationalisms that develop in the 19th century, developed very much as they weren't Christian as such because they were also national. They were Greek as opposed to Bulgarian, as opposed to Serbian. But they were also, uh, but they were very clearly, uh, Muslims had no space in these emerging polities. They were anti-Ottoman for sure. And so, and, and there were a lot of Muslims who were expelled from the Balkan provinces of what had been the Ottoman Empire. And a lot of Christians were then in return expelled from in the northern part of the empires. In other words, the Balkans and Anatolia were expelled from 
the, those parts of the empire. So there was a nationalist struggle taking place in the northern part of the empire. But in the Arab provinces, again, this is the part of the part of the book, and one of the main theses of the book is that in the Arab provinces, especially in the Mashriq, there was no ethno-religious nationalist imperative. You could be a Muslim, you could be Christian, you could be Jewish, and you could be Arab, and you could be Ottoman. You could debate what these meant, but the point is there was space for everything. There wasn't an imperative to choose A or B. Very unlike Greek nationalism, where you couldn't really be Muslim and be a Greek nationalist. It just made no sense. You couldn't be an Armenian nationalist and be Muslim, because again, it doesn't make sense. And then in response to that, the Ottoman state begins to slowly abandon its its notion of an ecumenical project, and it focuses increasingly on Muslim subjects. And it takes, the state, I'm saying, takes a very dim view of Christian minorities in the empire, especially the Armenians. And that's why the Armenian question or the Armenian, uh, uh, the massacres of the Armenians that take place, take place in the 1890s, the major massacres of the, not in the 1790s, not in the 1690s, not in the 1590s, although Armenians have always been there, but specifically in the end of the empire in the late 19th century, because that's when nationalism comes in from Europe in the northern part of the empire in particular, and forces people to choose different sides. Not, of course, it's again, a more complicated picture. There were people who refused to choose sides. There was, of course, uh, you know, again, not every single Armenian acted in the same way, obviously, but I'm, I'm trying to say that there was a, there was really this breakdown of an Ottoman system in the northern part of the empire in a way that there was not a breakdown in the southern part in the Arab provinces. The Arab provinces were able to flourish until the very end of the empire. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Pluto Press, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Let Them Eat Crypto, The Blockchain Scam That's Ruining the World by Peter Housen. The subject of immense hype, hope, and confusion, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology promised to revolutionize every industry. In this shocking expose, Peter Housen reveals the huge social, political, and environmental costs of cryptocurrencies. Housen tells an alarming story of how right-wing libertarian crypto entrepreneurs, often aided by charities, politicians, and philanthropists, exploit conditions of poverty, oppression, corruption, and conflict. Their goal? A new frontier of crypto-colonial extractivism. Let Them Eat Crypto reveals the alarming truth. Blockchain offers only false solutions, surveillance, and high-tech snake oil. Let Them Eat Crypto by Peter Housen. Out now from Pluto Press. You argue that this is a key and underappreciated divergence that happens between what becomes Turkey, the one-time seat of Ottoman power, and the Balkans on the one hand, and the Mashriq on the other. Why has that divergence not been studied in the way that it should? What does that lead us to misunderstand about what later happens not only in the Mashriq, but in Turkey and the Balkans? 
Well, I mean, the reason why it's not studied or not focused on or not commented on is because what happens after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire is that each of these places develops its own historiography, a national historiography that focuses only on itself and doesn't really think of comparing itself to other parts of the former empire, frankly. They're all trying to focus on how modern they are or how European they are or how westernized they are. Um, and so that's one reason. The other reason is that it's, it's again, historians have tended to, to focus on comparisons between the Ottoman Empire, for example, as an empire with the Russian Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But within the empire, there's very little comparative work, again, because people who work on the Arab provinces tend not to know very much about the Balkan provinces. People who work on the Balkan provinces tend not to know about the Arab provinces. And people who work on Turkey tend to know Turkey. People who work on Istanbul tend to focus on Istanbul. And, and so people don't really have a comparative imperial empire-wide framework uh, in general. And so I think that's one reason or some of the reasons. What's, what's obvious to me, and that's a point I make in the book, is that Turkey eventually becomes a, a so-called secular state under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk after World War I, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the Turkish state. But it's a secular state that is, that is denuded of its Christian populations, both the Armenians who were massacred in the genocide of the First World War, and then, of course, you have the Greek-Turkish population exchange of the 1920s, of the early 1920s. And so, yes, you have, you know, you, you have a secular state, but it's a secular state that's extraordinarily draconian in terms of an extraordinarily intolerant of difference, in part because that state is reacting to the history of the 19th century, where European powers would often, we didn't talk about this enough, but would often intervene in the Middle East in the name of protecting various minorities. And so the Turkish state took a very dim view of minorities, and they said, these people are actually a threat to our sovereignty, and we're going to act accordingly and often ruthlessly. And the irony is that we call it a secular state. The Arab provinces, however, emerge out of this, exp and, and a similar process takes place with the Greeks, with the Greek state, because the Greek state, of course, expels its Muslim population as part of the population exchange, which, of course, it was not a voluntary exchange. It's not that the people who were being expelled or exchanged, so to speak, had any say in the matter. It was a compulsory exchange agreed upon by two different states. Um, but the people who were exchanged, you know, had their lives turned upside down in the 1920s. But my point is in the Arab provinces, there wasn't this kind of existential choice. You didn't have to make a choice whether to be Muslim or Christian or Jewish and be part of an Ottoman, late Ottoman or an Arab post-Ottoman polity, because almost all these states actually didn't claim to be exclusively Muslim or exclusively Christian states. I think this is an important point. And so the, the irony is that the Arab world is thought of today as a place full of sectarianism. But in fact, if any part of the empire carried on the Ottoman 19th century heritage, it was in the Arab East, in fact, is what I argue in the book. Whereas everyone else abandoned very quickly um, the, the, the ecumenical aspect of the Ottoman past. Yeah. So, so because European powers or in response to European powers so frequently intervening in the Ottoman Empire to protect in the name of protecting religious minorities, Turkish nationalists saw Christians as imperial proxies or Absolutely. imperial infections almost. The same attitude- A fifth column. Fifth column. The same attitude taken by Muslim rioters in Damascus in the 
1860 that the Nada was was pushing back against. Yes, except I would say that 1860, I mean, that's an interesting point. Um, but I would say 1860 is really a breakdown of order. And yes, maybe they did, there was this conflation. In fact, there was this conflation between local Christians and foreign Christians and Western intervention and Western imperialism. But I think it was a, a transient moment. It was a breakdown of order. It wasn't the norm, so to speak, as opposed to what states do, which, and that's why when states are doing things, it's very different. It was organized, methodical, structured, and, and carried out with ruthless efficiency. And I think that that's uh, and with ruthless sort of violence in terms of the people involved. So I think it's very different than than the popular sort of you know moment of a breakdown of order, as horrific as it was. I think we should lastly maybe just pause to note that that Ataturk saw his project as as making Turkey a modern, westernized nation in many ways, and this is what that meant for him. Making it a homogenous state for sure, and also changing the 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 alphabet, uh, changing the script, I should say, changing the um, you know all these secular reforms, but all again a secular state, but at a huge cost. That and It's still ongoing in Turkey. You just have to go to Turkey. And, and just the idea where, where religious pluralism is not something that's factored in very deeply. And of course, there's still an ongoing a massive problem with with uh, the Kurdish uh, question in Turkey. And, and But my point is in the Arab provinces, what's interesting is you have far weaker states that emerge. I mean, we can talk about that later, but far weaker states emerge in the aftermath of the Ottoman Empire but they're far more committed, as I said, to religious pluralism than than the Turkish state was, which was which eventually becomes far stronger. Let's talk about those those post Ottoman mandate states in in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. What what sort of states were these? What sort of local governments were put in place by British and French colonial powers? And in what sense were those approaches different? particularly in terms of religious difference. And then and then lastly, how did those forms of colonial mandatory governance compare to British governance of mandatory Palestine, which was subject to a peculiar form of mandatory government thanks to the mass Zionist settlement underway in accordance with the policy goals set out in Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration? First of all, the, the main difference between the Ottoman and the mandate or the British-French division and partition of the Ottoman Arab East is exactly that division and partition. So under the Ottomans, there was a sovereign whole. The idea was, of course, how do we develop this idea of Ottoman unity or Arab unity within Ottoman unity? How do we develop these notions of unity and deal with religious or ethnic or various diff- forms of difference. How do we do both at the same time? But but it's in the context of an Ottoman framework, a unifying framework. And even though the Ottoman Empire sort of carried out massive persecution of the Armenians, for example, towards the end of the empire, they didn't formally give up on the idea of of uh, an empire that would include Christians. It really is. It's it's actually one of the paradoxes, if you want, of the, of the empire. Um, but it's also an important aspect that takes us back to the Tanzimat and to that earlier period we were talking about earlier. The Ottomans had, until the very end of the empire, legitimacy um, in the sense that they had been the rulers for centuries and that many of, especially when I'm talking about the Arab provinces, many of the, of the Arab uh, officers who end up in, or civil servants who end up working in Istanbul, going through 
a new educational system end up in Istanbul, they end up identifying, in fact, towards the end of the 19th, early 20th century, far more as Ottoman than they had ever done before. But they were also Arab, so there could be both. There was no contradiction, really, between the two until the end of the empire, when everything falls apart during the First World War, or just before the First World War, just, you know, and, and during the First World War. That's very different than the British and the French, who, first of all, come in and divide up this entire region. So that's that's huge. I mean, you cannot underestimate the force of division when you're taking a sovereign whole and parceling it out, partitioning it into various states, not to suit the interest of the local populations, but to suit imperial interests. So that's a huge difference. That's one massive difference of extraordinary importance and effect that goes on, that we still have, that reverberates until today, obviously. So all the states that are created are created to suit imperial British and French interests, not to suit local interests. That's point number one. Point number two is the fact that the for the British and the French, the the idea of citizenship, British or French citizenship, was never on offer. You're not there to help people. You're not trying to cohere people, trying to overcome religious difference or ethnic difference to reach an Ottoman citizenship. You're, you're, in fact, it's never on offer because you're British and French European colonizers coming in allegedly to help the natives, to help civilize the natives, to help lead them to self-determination. That was the myth of the mandate period. This is the League of Nations and the whole idea is that they are under uh, colonial tutelage, not permanently, but so that they can achieve some self-determination at some later date. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're summarizing it, but yeah, that's that's effectively what it was. I mean, the point is that it's 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 Europeans ruling others, non-Europeans. That was very clear. So that's also very different from what the Ottomans were trying to do or what people in the Ottoman Empire were trying to do. The The third difference is that, of course, there is the question of Palestine, which then emerges as this huge problem at exactly this this moment, this juncture. I mean, it was a problem developing in the late empire, but it really explodes once the British take over and commit to the Balfour Declaration and to colonial Zionism in Palestine, what I call colonial Zionism in the book in Palestine. But but the, the point is, again, to go back to this pivotal moment in 1919. So the empire, the Ottoman Empire uh, is, you know, during the war was, as, as you can imagine, and as most people presumably know, you know, in wartime, the Ottomans, uh, uh, they, there was an extraordinary amount of violence. There was famine. There was a persecution of the Armenians. There was a persecution of nationalists, uh, Arab nationalists in Damascus and in Beirut. Uh, there was a British invasion of Palestine. There was also a British invasion of Iraq. I mean, there was uh, all these things. There was a Russian invasion. There was the Armenian genocide. All these things. Are, and there, there was a, a cataclysmic crisis for the Turks as well, for the Turkish parts. I mean, the whole place is, is, is collapsing in the First World War. And what happens afterwards at the League of Nations in 1919 is that there's this huge question. And I don't really, I'm, I'm writing a book about it right now, but at the time in 1919, the question was, okay, so the empire has collapsed. How are we going, how are we as in the Western powers, Britain, France, principally, but the United States was also intervening through President Wilson. How are we going to reshape the Ottoman Empire or what, what, what had been the Ottoman Empire into new states in line with, with this idea of self-determination? And it's important, again, for your listeners to know that self-determination did not mean self-determination in the way that we think of it as an independence. Wilson meant self-determination only in the sense that over time, 
the civilized Anglo-Saxon world would help, or powers, the United States and Britain, would help nurture uncivilized or less civilized peoples to an eventual, very, very, very down the line, an eventual form of self-determination. But it was incredibly vague, and it was extraordinarily hierarchical, and of course filled with racial caveats. This is crucially important to understand. But the problem is that, that when Wilson and Lenin and others had used the term self-determination, people around the world at the time, in the Arab world, in places like Egypt, Syria, Palestine, as well as in China, Korea, India, and many other parts of the world, they, most people understood self-determination exactly as we understand it, independence. There's no prevarication. There's no, there's no, there's no disingenuousness. There's no dishonesty. There's no, there's, it's very obvious. Self-determination means what it sounds like for most people in the world, but the problem is not for the Western powers who were committed to colonialism and who were committed to racial hierarchy and who were absolutely opposed to the idea of independence as such, full independence. Of, it was just unimaginable to them. And so the Western powers basically then had a choice. What do we do with these Arab provinces? They had been all part of the Ottoman Empire. And now the question was, do we give them independence, which is what the Arabs were asking for after the collapse of the empire? Do we turn Palestine into a Jewish state, which is what the Zionists in Europe were asking for? Do we do something else with this part of the world? What do we do? And so at Paris in 1919, all these different delegations go or try to go to Paris. And, and what happens in Paris in 1919 is that the Arab delegation that's there, led by uh, Emir Faisal, Prince Faisal, who's the son of Sharif Hussein. Again, the details are not so so important, but but they are in the sense that they they basically sort of give you some sense of what was at stake. So in 1915, the British had promised Sharif Hussein in Mecca, basically an independent Arab kingdom in what had been part of the Ottoman Empire in what is today Saudi Arabia, that this whole region, Arabia, you know, and all the way to Syria. They had promised them an independent Arab kingdom. They, the British were never serious about fulfilling that pledge. They were manipulating Sheikh Hussein, uh, King, Sheikh Hussein. They were manipulating him to get him to rise up against his Ottoman rulers and then split the Muslims, basically. You get the Arabs to fight the Turks and you split the Muslims and you undermine Ottoman sovereignty during wartime. And they, and, you know, they were incredibly evasive and dishonest, as the British always are in terms of imperial power. I mean, there's no surprise there. They're using and manipulating natives as they have throughout their history. He insisted, however, that he would not rebel against his Ottoman masters unless he was given a specific pledge. The pledge being basically an independent Arab kingdom. And what's interesting is that the British kept saying, well, we can't really include Christians, as in Lebanese Christians, as part of an Arab kingdom because they're not Arab. And he said, no, of course they are because they're Arab. Christianity is part of our history. And again, going back to that, so he was drawing on the interesting thing. He was drawing on the history I've been alluding to and talking about with you. And, and the British, of course, were totally insensitive to that. And they, um, but that's, again, the Orientalist British attitude, uh, totally racist towards, towards not just the Arabs, but, but all peoples around the world, all non-Western peoples. And so, but in the end, they pledged this, they promised him this, this independent kingdom. They, at the same time, secretly pledge or have an agreement with the French to divide up the same region that they've promised Sharif Hussein as an independent kingdom. They've also divided secretly with the French in what is known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This is 1916. And in 1917, they pledge, uh, Balfour pledges to uh, Rothschild in England 
the Balfour, he issues the Balfour Declaration in November 1917, basically promising that the British government will view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a Jewish national home. You know, this new concept of a national home was invented in this period. And Balfour is a Balfour is a virulent anti-Semite. It's important to yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he, he's he's a Christian Zionist, is what I would call. He was an imperialist. He was a racist. He was anti-Semitic. He was all these things combined into one. It's very it's a very interesting sort of problem. And um, but above all, he had nothing but contempt for the native populations in terms of the story I'm trying to tell here. Um, and so what's interesting is that nineteen. So that's nineteen seventeen. So you have these basically a triple triple dealing what the British are doing here. And so then when when they when everyone ends up in Paris in 1919 and Wilson hears about all these things, now again, Wilson was himself completely committed to racial hierarchy, to segregation. He's not like, a, he's not a great guy, so to speak. What's interesting is that Wilson is persuaded to send an American commission of inquiry, an international commission of inquiry to the post-Ottoman Arab East in 1919 to ask people like how it is and what it is they want to determine, how they want to determine their own future. It being understood that that this region was going to be placed under one European or another European mandate. But at least the natives would have a say in how it is that they wanted to determine their own political future. And the reason Wilson agreed to this is because an American missionary, Howard Bliss, had seconded a plea by the Arabs to send a commission. Like, okay, at least ask us what we want and how we want to determine our own political future. And Howard Bliss, who was a missionary and had been and was head of the the Syrian Protestant College, which is today the American University in Beirut, he went to the Paris Peace Conference. He was allowed to represent the Syrians because the Syrians were not allowed to represent themselves because of Orientalism, racism, imperialism. But he, as a white man, was allowed to go. And because he's a white Protestant man, he was listened to by Wilson, who then said, "Oh, good idea. Let's send a commission." The problem is that the British and the French were horrified, and the Zionists, they were all horrified by the idea of an independent commission, because they all knew perfectly well that any independent commission with any integrity would report back that the peoples of the Levant or the Arab East did not want European colonialism, wanted independence, and wanted unity, self-determination. And the interesting thing is that the commission did go. It's called the King Crane Commission. And your listeners should look it up because it's a fascinating commission. It's the first commission that I'm aware of anywhere in the world which asked Native peoples how it is that they wanted to determine their own political future. Again, a lot of caveats. They were paternalistic. They were, you know, imbued with all sorts of ideas of Anglo-Saxon supremacy. So I don't want to minimize all these, the negative aspects of the King Crane Commission. But the interesting thing is that they actually did do something quite fascinating. I mean, and they went out to the Middle East after World War I. They, they conducted this grueling tour that started in Palestine in June of 1919. And they end in, uh, they go through Palestine, what is today Palestine and Israel, and they end up in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and then Syria again, and end up in Turkey. And then they go back to Istanbul, and from Istanbul they go to Europe, where they write up the report, and they say, this is in 1919, mind you, August 1919, they, they, they submit their final report, and they basically say, if we're going to take the idea of self-determination seriously, then there's no way and no reason to divide up the Arab East, the, the, the region. There's absolutely no reason to do it. If we're taking the idea of actually 
wanting to actually help these people. There's no reason because they basically all speak the same language and they're all essentially one people. Yes, there are religious differences, but so it's not, that's not an impediment to create, uh, to keep them in a unified, if we're taking their own interests uh, seriously. That's the first thing they say. The second thing they say, they recommend an independent, unified Arab state under the leadership of Faisal, the son of Sharif Hussein, who had been in Paris and who was the the head of a of a nominally independent Arab state in Syria that was just beginning to come into being in 1919. A Hashemite kingdom. A Hashemite, well, a kingdom, yeah, a Hashemite kingdom in in Syria, uh, an Arab kingdom in Syria. But again, that was multi-religious. It was very important. That had really was, in fact, if anything, it was the culmination of the Ottoman period because it basically was essentially like the late Ottoman state, but within a much smaller geographic space. But the same idea, equality of all citizens, blah, 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 all the, all the stuff we talked about earlier. And then the third thing that they recommended, because they, they said, we came here as Zionists. We were, we were actually, they said, we were, we were um, in favor of Zionism. We had a favorable impression of Zionism because they were coming from the West and they, you know, they had encountered Zionists, they had known Zionists, they had known about Zionism. And of course, the Zionists, unlike the Palestinians, unlike the Syrians, Unlike the Egyptians, the Zionists were allowed to present their case in Paris. The Arab nationalists, as in the Syrian nationalists, the Palestinians, the Egyptians, were not allowed by the Europeans to go present their case. The Zionists could speak for themselves. The Zionists, could, for sure, could speak for themselves. Uh, and of course, they could speak, you know, and they, and they claimed to speak, of course, on behalf of the Jewish people um, everywhere. And, and of course, they made extraordinarily, extraordinarily ambitious Zionist claims on Palestine, and they wanted to transform it into a Jewish state. They, of course, completely ignored the fact or or minimized the fact that there was an Arab population in Palestine, the Palestinians, and the King Crane Commission, however, did not ignore them. And King Crane says something amazing in 1919. They say, look, if if we're going to take Wilsonian self-determination seriously, we have to acknowledge the fact that there are people who are living on this land. There's no way to reconcile their well-being with self-determination and with Zionism. You, you, cannot, you can't have Zionism in its maximalist form, as in the creation of a Jewish state. That's not going to harm the native population, and that would not be right or just. And they say two things at the end of the report. They say, first of all, they say that the, the, the idea that the Zionists have a right to Palestine based on an occupation of 2,000 years ago, cannot be seriously considered. So they dismiss that out of hand. They say that's, just, that's not a basis upon which to create a modern state, a new state. You simply cannot rely on the Bible, which is quite interesting, given the fact that, that the people who, who were... One of the, the leaders of the King Crane Commission, Henry King, was the president of Oberlin College when he was himself a devout Christian. And so, but he said, you can't, we can't seriously take this as a basis because, you know, that's not a basis of modern... Of modern, of modern law or modern thinking. And the second thing they said, if you are going to impose this Zionist project on Palestine, it is going to lead to war. They said this in 1919. They said, and they said decisions sometimes requiring armies, requiring armies are sometimes necessary, but surely not in the interest of a serious injustice. And so they call it out in 1919. They say this is completely and utterly unacceptable. I mean, I'm using the words unacceptable, but they say it's a serious injustice, and they, they, they say their recommendation is very firm. Don't do this. It's going to lead to violence. They predict almost everything that's going to happen. They say it all. In, it's all in writing. Uh, 
they submit the report to Wilson and it's suppressed. It's never, uh, it's not clear what happened to the report. It's never, Wilson never acknowledges the report. He had a stroke. So it's not clear, like, uh, you know, he never formally acknowledges the report, but the report is effectively suppressed. And the British and the French do exactly what the commissioners warned against. Every single one of their recommendations, they, they, they do the opposite. So the British and the French then divide up the region precisely because their interests were to divide up this region, not the interests of the native population. They commit themselves to Zionism, which again, the, Balfour, the King Crane Commission specifically warned against. And of course, Arabs, I have to say, Arabs themselves had warned against. And they, what's the third thing they do? They, they, uh, and then the French send an army in. Not only do they partition the region, they send an army in to get rid of Faisal. And they get rid of him um, in July 1920. It seems like this this remarkable commission being ignored was almost inevitable, given that both their methodology of speaking to actual Arabs and their conclusions were that Arabs should govern themselves and that Zionism would be catastrophic for the region, because both the methods and the conclusions were utterly contrary to the entire project underway, a project not only established by British and French imperial powers by the United States, but by people like white South African leader Jan Smuts, notorious racists. A hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly why that's exactly why the commission what the report was suppressed, and it's why the recommendations were suppressed and ignored, and it's why the the British and the French uh, doubled down on their sort of sectarianism, their Orientalism, their racism, and their commitment to colonialism in the name of civilizing the various peoples of the Arab East. Now, you asked about Palestine, the difference between... So they created these things called mandates, which is this fictitious... It's basically colonialism. And it's really important to emphasize this point, again, because most people are not aware necessarily of these really important aspects. First is that the Arab East is, as far as I am aware... Could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong. But the Arab East is the last place in the world to be colonized by the West, in the name of the mandates. So after Africa had been colonized, after the Americas had been colonized, after Asia had been colonized, it was now the turn of the after North Africa had been colonized, it was now the turn of the Arab East. And the perverse, or the perversity, or the bitter irony of this moment is not just that that the Arab East was the last place to be colonized. It was colonized in the name of self-determination. If there's anything more perverse than that, I don't know what it is, but there you have it. In the name of self-determination, Article 22 of the League of Nations, although the term self-determination is not in Article 22, but the whole idea of helping these people who are almost on the... In fact, they're, they're civilized enough in the in the, the former Ottoman Empire. The Arabs and others are and Armenians are civilized enough that we can provisionally recognize their independence subject to the rendering of administrative assistance, about which they have no choice, of course. And so, do you see what I'm saying? So it's the last place in the world to be colonized. It's colonized in the name of self-determination. And they're going to be uh, divided up along lines, ethnic, religious lines, political lines that suited the British and the French. And Palestine was the one mandate, these were called mandates, and of course, they were, there was an open duration. They were meant to be limited, but the British and the French never put a specific timeline as to when this tutelage was going to end. But the, the point is that the tutelage was meant in every case, in the case of Syria, which was one mandate, 
Lebanon, which the French split off from Syria, Mesopotamia, which became Iraq, a third mandate, and eventually Jordan becomes a mandate. Initially, it was bundled into Palestine, but it was, um, it becomes, so these mandates, all these other mandates were in theory and legally, according to the League of Nations, destined to lead ultimately down the line in the far future, unspecified when, after a period of unspecified tutelage, they were going to lead to independence of these native populations who were recognized in 1919 as, quote, provisionally independent, subject to the rendering of administrative assistance. So you have this new form of colonialism where you recognize the native polity, you call it Syria, or you call it Iraq or Mesopotamia, but at the same time, you or Lebanon, but at the same time, you have European overlords who are there, who are running the show, in effect. The former And the former Ottoman territories were class A mandates. There was a whole racialized hierarchy of mandates that Arabs were hypothetically at the the top of and and black africans were at the bottom of not not black black Af- black africans were, were class b mandates right and class, class c, c were the, was were, were the, the pacific islands and so on and other places yeah uh so yeah it was absolutely a racial hierarchy i mean as you said jan smuts and wilson these are people who and balfour all these people they are all utterly believed in in racial hierarchy and in in separate but equal, the Jim Crow kind of stuff. I mean, again, Jan Smuts himself was one of the one, one of the sort of main like, theorists of segregation and of apartheid in terms of thinking through these ideas of, of these completely racist ideas of separating the races because they each have a different pace of development and capacity and so on and so forth. So all these ideas were, were put in place and the Arabs were considered to be the most civilized of the of the of the non-Western or among the most civilized of the non-Western peoples, but the bottom line is that they were all placed under these mandates, nevertheless. And it was extraordinarily bitter because the last people in the world to be colonized, the people who had a, a tremendous heritage that we talked about earlier, the, the the ecumenical heritage, the culture of coexistence, this 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 age of coexistence, where in no other part of the world was there more evidence of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish commitment uh, and commonality than in the Arab East, honestly, that, that I'm aware of. Nowhere else was there this kind of commitment, um, or at least the Ottoman Empire in part, with all the caveats and all the the, the nuances and the differentiations that, that, that we would need to get into, but certainly far more than in Europe or America. There's certainly nothing that comes close to that in terms of Muslim, Christian, Jewish uh, coexistence. In this one part of the world, the Europeans decide to create these various states. So just so what I say in the book as a point worth remembering and repeating here is the one part of the world where you had the 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 most extraordinary efforts to overcome a legacy of Muslim primacy over non-Muslims where you actually were, were getting together with all the tensions in the Arab East of Muslim and Christian and Muslim and non-Muslim you're trying to resolve that historic sort of problem in a sense that had been part and parcel of Ottoman governance in that one part of the world, the Europeans not only come in and divide up this region, but they introduce a new problem, which is Jew versus Arab. You start separating peoples out and you create an entirely new conflict. And you start, you, you, you ontologically, rhetorically, conceptually, and of course politically, separate Arab from Jew. I mean, there's no reason why Arab and Jew should be separate categories. It's quite interesting how they, this becomes, so just as you resolve Muslim, non-Muslim, at least you try to resolve it, you end up with this new, in the Arab East, you end up with this new problem of Arab versus Jew. In other words, the question of Palestine and Zionism 
And so the last point I'll say, just in answer to your question about Palestine, the difference between Palestine mandate and, and the other mandates is that Palestine was the one mandate which was specifically not designed to lead to the independence of the indigenous population. Not in five years, not in 10 years, not in 100 years, not in a million years. It was the, the, the idea of the mandate of Palestine was to fulfill the terms of the Balfour Declaration, which is itself is one of the most, especially from the standpoint of the Palestinians, one of the most egregious, outrageous documents of modern history. We should emphasize here how colonial Zionism was basically impossible and, and almost unthinkable as long as the Ottoman Empire existed up until this moment when Britain seizes control. And we'll get into this more later, but that's why even people like Ben-Gurion are in a sense not fully political Zionists early on because it's not even fully imaginable that that could happen. And establishing a Jewish state doesn't even become the most clear unified goal of the Zionist movement until the Biltmore Conference in, in, in 1942. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that necessarily. I don't, I don't entirely agree with that. I think, it's, I think it's the, the project is, is well underway before Biltmore. I think Biltmore is where you have a shift from British to American, an emphasis from British to American. Sort of. Interesting. But you're right in the sense that by, I mean, also 1942 is during World War II. It's it's right. a different it's a different era. But I think, I think that for me the main turning point would be 1917. I think you're right to say that 1917 is a major, like the Balfour Declaration and the creation of colonial Zionism. But even before that, I mean, Herzl. If you go read any of these these writings, so obviously there there are many different forms of Zionism before. I mean, like you know, there obviously there's cultural Zionism. There are all these different forms of Zionism. But once the world, once the Congress decides in 1897 in Basel to actually establish a Jewish state, and that's the goal, and and Herzl, of course, played a critical role in this. And then eventually, the Balfour Declaration through Weizmann and through the various Zionist individuals and and organizations in in the West start lobbying very strongly. And and, and you see this in Paris in 1919. I talked about this earlier. But then you see the structure of the British mandate itself and the way it's set up. It's set up to fulfill the idea of a Jewish state, although it's not called a Jewish state. It's called a Jewish national home. But the Zionists are privileged in almost at every level. They're privileged by the British colonial power in Palestine. So I think that's an important point. But the Biltmore, yeah, also is is another yet another major step. And the, the key thing about 1917, though, is that amidst World War I, the end of the Ottoman Empire becomes seeable, uh, imaginable, and thus political Zionism becomes practical, practically imaginable for the Western colonial powers in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, I would say, I would say exactly. And I would say also, I would even add to that and say 1917 and the Balfour Declaration and the British conquest of Palestine, which is taking place at the same time as all this is unfolding, is where political Zionism becomes colonial Zionism. Because that's the moment where the Zionists in Europe, and it's a point, again, I make in the book over and over again, and I make this every single time I give a talk, because it's really important for listeners to understand this point, that Zionism did not emerge among the Jewish communities, the indigenous Jewish communities of the Ottoman Empire or the Arab world or the Arab East. It did not emerge from there. And it's important to emphasize this point because it emerged in Europe in response to European problems, in response to European anti-Semitism, in response to European nationalism, in response to European romanticism. That's why it that's why it emerged in Europe as a European project with a non-European 
locale to solve the Jewish question, the so-called Jewish question of Europe. And Balfour Declaration takes that idea and says, okay, we're going to commit and the greatest power of the world, Britain, is going to commit to the fulfillment of this project. It's an, it's an astonishing sort of, honestly, moment. So that's where it becomes a colonial project, for sure. Right, where, where Jewish political Zionism is able to hitch a ride on the greatest colonial power. 100%. With the full knowledge of the fact that, especially people like Weizmann, the leaders, in other words, of the Zionist movement, all of whom... Again, one has to emphasize all of each of whom, every single one of whom was from Europe. Every single one was from Europe. Not a single major Zionist leader comes from the from the Arab Jewish communities, from Sephardic Jewish communities. No, they all come from Europe. It's, it's really important to emphasize this point. And they uh, they have European views towards the non-European. I mean, they they look down on Eastern Jews, they look down on Arab Jews, they look down on on Muslims, uh, Arab Muslims, Arab Christians. They look down on all these people as inferior in the way that Europeans did. I mean, that's what Europeans did. It's no, there's no surprise there, and they openly called it a colonial enterprise. There was no shame at the time in Europe to be a colonizer. And, and so, but they recognized, Weizmann and, and other Zionists understood perfectly well, once they got to Palestine, they understood that there was a problem, which is that there's a huge Arab-Palestinian presence. And this is, this is the ongoing problem that goes all the way until now, right? And so you have this extraordinary reversal that one has to emphasize, that you go from trying to solve a Jewish question, a so-called Jewish question in Europe, the Zionists then invent an Arab question in Palestine, which is like, it's, a, it's remarkable. Like these kinds of, these, these parallels are absolutely remarkable and ironic. We're going to return to the story of Zionism and the foundation of the state of Israel, the Nakba, in, in a lot more depth. But I, but I want to discuss the mandate period a little more. You, you argue that it, that it nationalized the ecumenical frame while also laying the groundwork for pan-Arab or, or pan-Islamic ideologies that would ultimately push back against that same nation-state-based fragmentation. You write, quote, the impulse of Western colonial rule was to segregate, disarticulate, and deconstruct an Ottoman whole into various sectarian and regional parts, but also to commit to building up new separate, pluralist, dependent national polities. You continue, Britain in particular drew in its vast colonial experiences in Egypt and India. From the outset, British rule in Iraq was not interested in transcending religious, tribal, communal, or ethnic differences in the country. Instead, it had reinforced these differences to deflect, undermine, and expose anti-colonial sentiment. Initially, at least, the French colonialists in the Levant adopted an even more divisive strategy than their British counterparts. What's this relationship that you're drawing out here between, on the one hand, the, the fragmentation of the Ottoman Mashriq into all these made-up nation-states, and then on the other hand, the fragmentation of societies into sectarian religious groupings? Well, I mean, it, th this is probably the most complicated part of the book, um, and that's to say that there is a European, obviously the European insistence and determination and racial colonialism of dividing up this part of the world under the pretext that this part of the world needs Western European support and tutelage. So that, that's the pretense. That's the racial sort of hierarchical pre pretense that, that, that undergirds this entire colonial fragmentation and division. But once they divide up the Mashriq into various states, 
I would say that they, when they divide them up into various states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, principally, uh, also Palestine, when they divide them up into these various states, the British and the French are committed, ultimately, to creating dependent, what, what an American, what, what is the American term for Native American polities? De- domestic dependent nations. I think that's how the, the phrase that the Supreme Court used in the 1820s. Same idea, basically, that you're nominally independent, but you're under our control. You're nominally sovereign, but you're under our control. So the British want to create a viable Iraqi kingdom under, they take Faisal, who had been expelled from the French, by the French uh, from Syria in 1920, as I said, they take him and they make him king of Iraq. And hence you have the Hashemite kingdom of Iraq. And the interesting thing there is that, is that Faisal actually genuinely wants to create a unified Iraqi state, a kingdom, but he's utterly dependent on the British, which the British, of course, want. They want a weak Arab sovereign under whom you have all sorts of, of course, like in any state or like in any pluralist state, you have all this diversity in Iraq, ethnic and religious diversity, and you're trying to build the states. And so the British at one level are committed to the idea of Iraq under British tutelage, which means you're committed to the idea of maintaining Iraq. You see what I'm saying? Within, with all its diversity. And you're not going to overly fragment Iraq because you want it to be a, a, like a dependent polity. But you certainly don't want Iraq to join with other Arab states. You don't want it to become like, you don't want it to, to, to break loose from British dependency. So this is the paradox of British rule. And of course, that British presence, which is so illegitimate, then by definition spurs more anti-colonial, by, by its very presence, the way the French do in Syria, they spur anti-colonial mobilization. So what, what happened in the Ottoman period becomes even more focused, but in separate national spheres. So you have the development of an Iraqi nationalist movement, the development of a Syrian nationalist movement, the development of a Palestinian nationalist movement. And again, just like in the Ottoman period, you have some who are more nationalist and there are some who are more Islamist. But my point is that they're both emerging from an Ottoman frame, an Ottoman background. And they're both committed to the idea, whether they're Islamist or more secular nationalist, they're both committed to this idea of a multi-religious future, but they're fighting against British and French colonialism. So it's, it's a complicated story of what I'm trying to draw out there. Why did, because we keep returning to this, so we should probably clarify, why did European colonialism all the way back to the Ottoman period, why did it rely on this ideology that legitimated European domination on the basis of, of protecting multi-confessional harmony and religious minorities? Did that, did the ideology simply come about because it worked, because it was functional, or was it rooted in some specific Orientalist discourse? Yeah, of course, it's rooted in, in both. I mean, it's both functional in the sense that you have a pluralist society and you want to rule over it. And so you take its constituent parts and you unravel them. And then you say, only we, we are the indispensable arbiter of this difference. And we're we're essential to stability. And without us, these, these people would, would kill each other. That's the, which is what the Americans did in Iraq in 2003, after 2000. It's the same, it's, it's exactly the same thinking. The, the difference is that the Amer- in the American case, it's, a, it's, a, it's even more of a farce because it's the second time around as opposed to the first time with the British and the French. I mean, so the Americans have this whole history before that you would have thought they would have learned from, but what they learned were all the l- wrong lessons. But anyway, to get back to your question about why they did that, because of this deep-rooted, deep, deep-rooted Orientalist notion that's still there, it's still evident, you still see it everywhere in the West, which is the idea that somehow in the West you can have religious difference, 
You can have extraordinary anti-Semitism in the West. You can have extraordinary racism in the West. The most extreme forms of racism that, that have been elaborated anywhere in the world, as far as I can tell, and certainly the most extreme forms of anti-Semitism in Europe. And yet at the same time, you can also say, but we ourselves are capable of developing in Europe societies that can bring together peoples of different races and, and of different religions. That's the European conceit, the Western conceit, the American-European conceit. But other parts of the world, which in fact have far longer histories of religious coexistence, somehow are incapable of actually determining their own sort of paths. And also they can't be trusted to manage religious difference. They need us. So absolutely there's a racial thing. So we can become, from our religious difference, we can become citizens. In the East, religious difference is permanent and can never be transcended into real secular citizenship. You always need some European or American arbiter. So that, yeah, so the, both. Why they did that is because, again, just like if, if you imagine in America, if somebody was going to come into the United States today to colonize the United States, well, what would you do? You would immediately start saying, okay, well, you have different groups. Let's start separating them out. And it would be very easy to do so. In fact, it would be so much easier in the U.S. to do this than in the East. Because here, the differences, the racialized differences are so much more extreme here than they, than they have been in the East. Lebanon seems like a particular, but also in its particularity, generally illustrative case. You write, quote, in Lebanon, a quite different trajectory was followed, owing to the country's strong and assertive Christian political presence empowered by French colonialism. Rather than making nationalists out of minorities, as was the case in neighboring Syria, Lebanese elites consecrated a sectarian state whereby political power was parceled out along communal lines. How did Lebanon's model of sectarian governance get set up? And how did Lebanon, I guess, even how did it even come about as a separate country from Syria in the first place? And how did that strategy of divide and conquer compare to those employed elsewhere across the region by, by the British and French? Yeah, um, well, the, the short answer is French colonialism. I mean, there would be no Lebanon without French colonialism. That is abundantly clear. And there, Lebanon would never have been separated out as a state in the way that it was without French colonialism. So the French came in, they destroyed Faisal's army, a, a nascent army, a weak army in Syria. They destroyed the Arab kingdom of, that was based in Damascus. And then they, and they separated Lebanon out from Syria, and they carved out this state. And of course, in but to make Lebanon allegedly a viable state, they had to include all these areas that were overwhelmingly inhabited by, by Muslims, uh, whether it's coastal cities like Tripoli, whether it was in the, the south of the country or Balbak, which of course, and the, the Bekaa Valley, which is extremely sort of fertile, which had large Shi'i populations. None of these people, of course, were consulted in this French partition. So I think that's the first answer. The second answer is, of course, there was a Mar one can't deny that there was a Maronite elite in Lebanon uh, or in what would become Lebanon, which, which was collaborating. Not all Maronites, but a considerable portion of the Maronite elite were, in fact, enthusiastic collaborators with the French. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And so, and they helped articulate this idea of, of the necessity of Lebanon. The difference, however, between, I mean, we can get to this later on when we talk about Zionism, but one of the reasons why I, in the book, again, 
oftentimes people think of the Lebanese system, the sectarian system that you alluded to, that was created after, in this period, and compare it or contrast it with the nationalist system that, that comes to dominate in Syria and Iraq in particular, is that they, they, they tend to see these things as, as total opposites. And of course, there, there is obviously a fundamental difference between a sectarian system that privileges sectarian affiliation versus a nationalist system that pretends that there's, that there's only one affiliation, which is a nationalist affiliation, an obscure religious difference. There are differences, and they're really important, crucial differences. But both the Lebanese and the Syrian and Iraqi models, all three of those models, are all emerging in a European colonial context. A. B. They're all coming out of an Ottoman framework. They're just nationalizing in different ways depending on local conditions. I don't know if that answers your question, Dan. But so, in other words, in Lebanon, there was a collaborationist elite that was happy and willing to collaborate with the French, but the Lebanese Christian elites were not trying to create a Christian country. It's important to emphasize this. They really were committed for the most part, and they built a system with the French, of course. They built a system that could co-opt Muslim, Sunni, and Shiite and Druze elites. It's really important to emphasize this point. They built what they thought of as a viable uh, sectarian system. And their argument was, and, and this is why people can't stand, especially the nationalists, can't stand the Lebanese system because it's it's sort of a, a galling reminder that, first of all, sectarianism is not just a Western creation. I think that without the West, there was no question that none of this would have happened in the way that it did because of the force of colonialism and racism. On the other hand, the fact that Lebanese elites come along and they say, well, the reality is, this is the argument they used. Now, I don't agree with this, but this is what they said. They said, the reality is that we do live in a world of religious difference and communal difference. And rather than pretend that these differences don't exist, we need to acknowledge these differences and somehow defang them in a common polity. So we're going to create a state that is secular. So Lebanon is a secular state. In other words, it's not a state for Christians or for Muslims or for any group. It's, a, in theory, a secular state. There is no reference in the Lebanese constitution of 1926, there's no reference that privileges Christianity over Islam or Judaism. They're, they're all there, but they're not, they're not, none of them is privileged. So it's a state, it's in theory, and everyone is a Lebanese, everyone has equal duties, everyone has equal response. The standard, standard things you would see in modern sort of liberal constitutions. Everyone is an equal citizen, irrespective of religious affiliation. That's standard clear in the Lebanese constitution. But you can only participate in politics or society on the basis of your communal I identity? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, yeah, I mean, it, so that's, that's why this, but the point is what I'm trying to say is that they're, they create this system where they have buy-in for the Muslim elite. They're basically saying, we need to recognize that, that there are these religious differences, sectarian differences, communal differences. And remember, for your listeners, sectarian in the Middle East does not mean sectarian in America. It's not a Protestant sect. It's not these different sects in, the, in a Protestant sense. It's basically different communities. What we, in America, we would call, I don't know what we would call them in America, ethnicities or races or whatever, whatever, multi, multi-racial, multi, whatever, multicultural thing. It's, it's the idea of communal difference. And so they're saying that we need to recognize these things, but we need to recognize them in specific ways. First of all, everybody is equal. That goes without saying. So nobody is privileged over anyone else by law, by constitution. On the other hand, for a temporary period, they say this in the constitution that says this, for a temporary period, this is 1926, 
we're here we are in 2023 nothing is I mean, it's even much worse today but for a temporary period and only insofar as it is consistent with national unity they will allow the lebanese constitution allows for uh, a, a temporary division of political sort of cabinet posts along confessional or communal lines and then parliament is set up again along this idea of you know allegedly along demographic to, to respect the demography of the country along these these sectarian lines but in, in all these cases the idea is that is that we're, we're representing you just like in america you would say i'm going to represent a latinx or an african-american or a white or or whatever a community in politics we're going to represent them formally to include them in the system uh, at the same time, I mean that's that's the that's the idea in the Lebanese system. We're going to include these people in the system, but also make sure that everyone has a, a, a seat around the table so that nobody feels excluded. That's the theory of the system. The problem, of course, is the is that the theory obscured the other aspect of the system, which is that the system was inherently unequal. It privileged the Maronite Christians, who were the collaborators with the French, more than any other community. It gave them the most powerful positions in the country. And it created a system where there were there was far more Christian representation than Muslim representation, even though you could argue as early as the 1920s, the population in this country was more or less 50-50, if not even more Muslim than Christian. But the Muslims were, were absolutely not given the same access to power as the Christians were, and, and the, the Maronite Christians in particular. And so it created this fundamental problem of how do you integrate religious difference in an equitable manner? So it create that. So that's I don't know. That's that's very complicated. Maybe I know too much about Lebanon, but it's 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 a fascinating system because the idea is that you're trying to integrate people into a system. Elites, you're trying to integrate elites of other communities into a system, and it works insofar as these people, Sunni and Shia and Druze elites, are all co-opted into the system by the 1940s. They're all co-opted into the system. But these masses of people who are supposed ostensibly being made into equal citizens are actually fundamentally being interpolated on the basis of their communal identity. Is that an issue? Yes. I mean, so you vote. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you can vote in Lebanon until now. You vote as a secular citizen. You can you, you vote in a... So if I'm Protestant, for example, so I would go to a Protestant polling, the place that's designated for Protestants to vote. So you go there and you vote, but you can vote for anybody. You don't have to vote only for a Protestant. You can vote for anybody you want in the things, but the people you vote for are organized along communal lines so that each list or each, each district will have, let's say, X number of seats, three for Muslims, two for Christians, you know, depending on what, you know, or, or the reverse, depending on what area we're talking about. But you, you're still voting as a secular citizen. But there's a, there's a very, like, uh, tight combination of these two things but of course the, the main the main point that we really should talk about more is that what is more profound than that is the fact that the personal status laws in other words the laws of marriage divorce inheritance these laws are codified in this period along again that separate out this notion of secular citizenship on the one hand on the other hand when it comes to personal status in other words marriage inheritance divorce there's no one set there's no one law so each community has its own laws, and all these laws, almost every single one of these sets of laws, whether they're for Sunnis or Shiites or Christians or whatever it is, Druze, all these communities or Jews, any of the communities, the recognized communities of Lebanon, they all have their separate laws, but they all discriminate against women of their particular group. 
and they prevent, of course, the idea of of uh, secular marriage inside of Lebanon. Although Lebanese state will recognize your marriage if you get married in Cyprus or in the United States, it'll recognize your marriage, but not in Lebanon itself. It'll recognize it only as a marriage contracted abroad. So it's 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 a complicated system. That was part one of my two-part interview with Osama Magdisi, professor of history and chancellor's chair at the University of California, Berkeley. His books include Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promise of U.S.-Arab Relations, 1820-2001, Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries and the Failed Conversion of the Middle East, and the book we discussed today, Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, there is something in human history like retribution, and it is a rule of historical retribution, that its instrument be forged not by the offended, but by the offender himself. Whether podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theoria Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also, you can leave us a nice rating and review. Those help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people to check out our pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 